Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick, graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator, and I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills, with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Mark Slipman, producer on Maximum Carnage, Marvel 2099, X-Men, Wolverine, Dragon Ball Z, and dozens of other titles. And you're listening to The Marvelous with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode, and we press start, get it? Because it's a video game-themed episode. <laughs> Peter, top-shelf joke. Before we get into the usual rigmarole and introducing our very special guest, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, thar social medias. To which I say, ready, player one. Ooh, I like that one. Go on Facebook at facebook.com slash... The Marvelists. Go on Twitter and Instagram and follow us at... The Marvelists. You can also find us individually on them, their social media platforms on Facebook at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick. I'm also on TikTok for some reason at Peter Melnick, but better. And you can also find Eddie Wilson only on one place on the whole wide winter winter webs. I don't even know where I'm going here today. It's a forecast. <laughs> yeah, evidently. Well, I mean, it's it's it snowed in June at one point, probably. Well, as we record this, but you can only find him on Instagram, and that is at Eddie nine one nine three. And you can also find this show on a wide variety of streaming platforms, including iTunes, where you can rate, review, subscribe, and give us those five stars. We we like seeing those little five stars just float down from the sky, kind of like snow in June for some reason. I I just want it to snow in June for some reason. It's hot, guys. It's really hot. But remember, Eddie. What? Eddie's favorite part. Not. <laughs> Eddie Wilson doing a not joke in 2020. I Oh, this really is that kind of year. <laughs> we need to unsnap this part. All right. You can, well, remember, much like the ice cream machine at McDonald's, four stars or below does not work. You can also listen to the show on another selection of streaming platforms, including SoundCloud, Podbean, Pod... Podfather, that's, you know, the new name of the uh, Coppola movie or something. I don't know. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn, available for all iOS and Android devices. And I think I'm down to two lives now out of the three I had because of all those botches in this intro, but I digress. (laughs) Wow. Eddie, we are joined on the other end of the tin can and string with the producer of so many different video games having to do with Marvel, having to do with pop culture in general. Ladies and gentlemen, we are on the other end of the tin can and string with Mark Flitman. He is responsible for Maximum Carnage. Mark, good evening. How are you? He's winded. I'm I'm pretty winded (laughs) from that intro. Or wound up, depending on your perspective. I did have a Mountain Dew Zero, so... Oh. It happens. But Mark, first off, how did you get your start in the world of video games? Um, it's, well, I'll, I'll give you the short story. I um, attended college in about uh, the 70s, and um, there were no video games at that time, unless you had like a Commodore 64. 
So I was studying film and directing, and I wanted to be a filmmaker. I got out of college, and through a series of events, um, long story short, I ended up being a tester at a company called Mindscape in Buffalo Grove, Illinois. Um, started testing some games, doing my film production work in the Chicagoland area at the same time. And next thing I know, they asked me if I could go to uh, Toronto, Canada to work with a developer on a NES title that was called Dirty Harry. And I said to myself, wow, that, that's, that's a movie. Hmm. I want to be in the movies. That's pretty cool. And then while I was there for a month, they said, uh, Mark, can you please go to another developer uh, and keep an eye on them? And I said, well, I, this is not really what I do for a living. And they said, well, I said, what is it? And they said, it's Days of Thunder, which was another NES title and another movie. And I said, well, that's kind of cool. And uh, where's the developer? And they said, Australia. And I said, you know, maybe instead of pounding the streets in Chicago trying to get production work, I should be in uh, video games and travel the world. So that was my start. That's so cool. And I know a lot of those titles, I believe, were uh, Acclaim LJN, correct? Those two titles were Mindscape. Okay. And then I went from Mindscape to Konami and worked on uh, some Turtle titles and some Mission Impossible and some Simpsons and some original titles. At the time I was at Konami, they were doing a conversion. They weren't sure where the NES was going. You know, the market was getting a little older. The SNES was going to be coming out. Um, Nintendo didn't want to just disregard the NES because that was their huge launch platform for Nintendo. Um, so they were deciding, well, where is this going to go? Is it going to be an older audience? Is it going to still hang on? So the SNES came out, and for the NES, Konami converted a number of PC titles because they thought the, the uh, age range of the consumer for the NES was getting a little older. And so we did Pirates, we did Carmen Sandiego, we did King's Quest, a number of PC titles converted to the NES. And um, so that was great. I love doing those. Now, you had mentioned earlier that you were doing testing on games such as The Simpsons over at Konami. The Simpsons is considered one of the greatest arcade games of all time and one of the greatest licensed video games. And unfortunately, it never got to see a home release except on the PC. Was there ever, at least at one point you know, maybe discussed, hey, we're going to bring this game over to the NES or SNES or Genesis? There was not. I actually did the uh, PC conversion uh, with a company in Budapest, and um, that was it. Wow. You know, I think Midway really, the boom really came when uh, I was at Acclaim and they took the Midway arcade titles and put them on the home uh, systems like uh, Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam, and then everything just exploded. Yeah, and NBA Jam is you know one of the one of my all time favorite uh, conversions from a you know ports of a uh, arcade game over to console. You know, it, on every system I've played it on Genesis, NES, uh, I think even the honestly even the Game Boy one, they all 
maintained the same gameplay mechanics and ended up translating to a great game. You know, it, it was the same experience as the arcade, and it was very enjoyable. Um, and also, by the way, you had mentioned, I think that was Konami the ones that did the uh, X-Men arcade game as well? I, they probably did. Konami was a big... Well, Konami was doing arcade games, um, which was in a room at the office that was locked, and we weren't allowed to go in. Right. Time. But that was, I guess, the, um, the Japanese culture, the Konami culture. Everything was very secretive. Um, we were just the console producers. The arcade games were the you know, important things in the back room. Um, so, yeah, I think they did that. Yep. Yeah, and again, you know, that's one of those games. It never got to see a home release until 20-something years later through the, uh, the I believe, uh, PlayStation Network and Xbox Live Arcade. And it's a shame because that game, again, much like the Simpsons game, holds up so incredibly well. It has phenomenal gameplay mechanics that, honestly we ended up seeing in a game that we're going to be talking about in a little bit, Maximum Carnage. You know, the one of the best beat-em-up games, and it translated oh so well to the, uh, you know, later ports. But how did you get your start over at Acclaim LJN? Um, well, I was at Konami, um, as most game companies do at some point. They go through some... Uh, layoffs, some reevaluation, some uh, trimming. So a number of us left there, and I was at another crossroads in my career deciding I was in Chicago. Do I want to stay in the town that I grew up in, or do I want to take a chance, uh, apply to a bunch of game companies and see what happens and maybe move? So I shot out a bunch of resumes, got a couple of offers, um, and took the one at, at Acclaim. And what were some of the uh, first titles you worked on at, the, at uh, Acclaim? Well, at Acclaim, they, they pretty much organized the place um, in a very... It was, it, it was probably one of my best experiences of all the companies I worked at. What they did at Acclaim was they had three producers, and those three producers handled one-third of the company's products. So you, as a producer, you got a team, you got associate producers, you got testers, you got an assistant, and you were just responsible. So my team was responsible for all the Simpson titles, all the WWF wrestling titles, uh, all the Marvel titles, because in those days, the first Spider-Man movie had not even come out yet. So if you had the Marvel license, it wasn't. Spider-Man, or Captain America, or Thor. It was Marvel, period. Uh, and so during my time at Acclaim, we owned the rights to everything. And um, so Marvel titles. And then we had relationships with all the film studios. So film, I'd, I'd visit Warner Brothers and MGM and... Um, see what films were coming out, they'd send scripts, and we'd decide if we wanted to do a game on any movies coming out. And then every once in a while, we'd get a, a sports title on our team. Every team did sports titles. So at the time I was there, we were working on um, a Lennox Lewis boxing game. We had a Judge Dredd title in development. 
Yep, a lot of things going on. And yeah, Claim was you know known for getting so many insanely lucrative licenses. One of the ones like you know when you started mentioning all of the movies, we'd be remiss if we don't bring up Terminator. Like you guys had the Terminator license. <laughs> That's true. And another thing about this with Acclaim is, could you explain to the audience um, the difference between LJ or why there was both Acclaim and LJM? I'd love to explain that, but I have no idea. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I think, you know, as a big company, to have two different uh, labels is beneficial uh, financially and I'm sure business wise. But uh, I noticed one person asked a question about that, and it beats me. You know, I, I never even paid attention, to tell you the truth, on any title I put out, what, what was listed as LJN and what was listed as a claim. Right on, right on. Yeah, because like, I've always noticed that, and it's one of those little interesting things because it's all a part of the same company, but, you know, just different, I guess, divisions and whatnot. But... With this, what were some of the uh, first Marvel titles you worked on? When I started there, I uh, took over some ports of Spider-Man X-Men, a port of uh, T2 from the Midway arcade game, and then a number of Spider-Man titles on smaller platforms, uh, a lot of Game Boy Spider-Man titles, um, NES Spider-Man titles, uh, that's the way it worked at Acclaim. You, they did every platform. And at that time, it was SNES, Genesis, Game Boy, Game Gear, and, uh, and the Master, uh, Master System uh, PAL versions for Europe. So you just handled everything. You had a full plate at all times. If you finished one, they said, okay, what are you going to do next? And that's just the way it worked. And you mentioned that Spider-Man X-Men game, Arcade's Revenge. I believe it was on the uh, Genesis, but the one I have is the Super Nintendo version. With that, that's actually, I consider that to be one of the most underrated Spider-Man games that, you know, not many people talk about. And it's one of those games where from that time and era, you're not going to get the hang of it immediately. But the more you play, the more you end up understanding, oh, I've got to do this, 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 and this. And it's again, it's rewarding. It's one of those games that rewards you as you continue to play, you know? Yep. And with that, you know, the Spider-Man games, we would eventually see a game that myself and oh, so many others, you know, I, I ended up sharing this, uh, you know, that we were going to be speaking with you in the Facebook group for the podcast cartoonist kayfabe. And the post blew up a little bit. I enjoyed seeing all you know the reactions to it. You got to work on a game called Spider-Man Venom Maximum Carnage. And that game has a legacy of its own, and it's considered one of the best games to come out of LJN and Acclaim. And what is it like knowing that this game has that kind of legacy with not just you know Marvel fans, but fans of the 16-bit gaming era in general? I'm... I, to tell you the honest truth, I'm shocked. Um, you know, in the last few years, I've had a lot of people contacting me about games and titles that I did in the past. And, you know, when I was doing them, I think it's kind of like anything in life. 
sometimes you, you're so busy living it, you don't realize what you're doing. And then when it was, when I was doing it, it was just like a job. You worked on the next title and the next title, and um, you know, a lot of days were fun and a lot of nights were long. And you're working on, you know, multi-million-dollar titles, and you're worried that they're not going to get out on time, and you don't even have time to think about too much about how it's received because you're on the next title. You're, right. you know, you're in development on the next game. So if you have a chance, you pick up some gaming magazines and you look and see what the reviews are. But you don't really care because the reviewers are a few people and the consumers are the consumers. And sometimes you, you hear a little bit in the office about what numbers your, your title is doing. But that's it. So it's, I'm very happy years later to find out so many people liked it. You know, when you see a movie, I think when people make movies, there's so many award shows, and someone that was in a movie can go into a movie theater and see the audience reaction and, and get some feedback. When you make computer games and video games, you don't see people playing them in their house. Mm-hmm. So you don't know. And I never knew. Um, I knew that what I thought of a title, but it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's real nice to know that people enjoyed it and uh, remember it. And hopefully are influenced by it, and maybe they're making computer games now, and I sparked something in them. And it's interesting because this is a game that, you know, we haven't seen brought back onto like, you know, a streaming platform, you know, for online gaming or anything, or like, you know, maybe brought when Nintendo was doing their uh, Wii online store with the uh, virtual console. The game has never been re-released since, but the only way people can play this is either if they are fortunate enough to have the cartridge or the other way through emulation. But it's it's a game that's you know all these years later is still highly lauded as a great game a great beat 'em up a great again a, an example of a great licensed title and you know i'm surprised that you know marvel hasn't found a way to re-release this game and put it out there for the public to play i don't know where i was going with that but <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I think Marvel probably has their hands full with so many other things that they don't look back, they just look forward. And that is that is interesting because there are there are games that are, you know, again, highly praised, like the uh, 2000 uh, Spider-Man game by Acclaim that's never been re-released ever since. Same with uh, the 2004 Spider-Man 2 game, 2005 Ultimate Spider-Man those games have never seen a re-release. When you when you mention that, yeah, it's. I think the only time they've re-released a game was uh, the Marvel Ultimate Alliance games, and I think they were doing that because, hey, Infinity War is going to be happening soon. Wait, when was the one time we had everybody around? Hey, let's do this. Let me ask Mark too, just to put myself in a proper frame of mind, and for those who are not sure, uh, what time what time period were these games coming out specifically of the superhero character variety? Well, the, the games that I worked on, that was the early 90s. Early 90s. Okay. That definitely explains for me, because it could have been a couple things, that I would have thought that 
being a comic book collector in the 80s or in the late 70s, starting with and continuing into the 90s, that I would gravitate towards that. But I was drifting away from comics in the early 90s, and or it could have been that nothing was around where I was living at the time. So now I understand what was what was going on there. But that also made me think, and you know, the names you acclaim and everybody else. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that name. I remember seeing that that kind of thing. Uh, I couldn't start spitting out names to tell you to save my life. But and you remember it through the ads in the comics. The, that's right, and back pages in the midst of them, and some of the some of the commercials. I just thought of you know Sega at the end of that <laughs> commercial TV commercial. But for you, Mark, growing up, and like you said, you wanted to get into movies. What about when it came to, all right, it's a comic book character. Were you at all uh, anxious or maybe intimidated, not knowing a bit, uh, an iota about these things, or was just looked at as another job, and here's what you have to do? Well, to tell you the truth, it was a dream job, because growing up, I was way into comic books. In fact, I was into comic books, well, even to this age, but like you were mentioning, in the early 90s, it, it was... Um, I think Watchmen and The Dark Knight had come out, so DC was really big in the comic books at that point. Spawn just started coming out. Um, so there was a lot of breakthrough comic books and storylines. And But I, I grew up on comic books. I grew up on wrestling. I had recorded every Simpson episode on VHS. So I got to acclaim, and here I was, handed all these licenses that I knew I, I had a, you know, a real strong background on them. I was just like, uh, you know, living the, living the dream. I was going to say that it could have gone the other way and it was totally a positive thing where you, you grew, you had the comic book background growing up and you're like, I have a great job. Yeah. What, uh, what yeah. Marvel stuff were you, uh, were you reading growing up and, and stuff? Well, I was anyone else, X-Men, Spider-Man, um, and I hate to say it, don't hurt me, I was much more into DC when I was a kid. <gasps> I, I loved Batman, I loved uh, The Flash, Green Arrow, um, and those were more, um, you know, I, I just, I, I always have this conversation with my kids like you know i think the best superheroes are the ones with the it's not the superhero it's the enemy now spider-man is definitely cool there's no question and they've done a great job with them but when you got someone like batman who has an incredible amount of enemies like you know you got the joker you got mr freeze you got the scarecrow the ventriloquist i mean it goes on and on and they're all cool that's what makes a superhero is the people that they fight, we've, in my opinion. Yeah, no, we've heard that from other sources as well. Yes, they're only as good as the villain you pit them up against. And it just led me to thinking also, too, uh, and I've only heard, uh, as memory serves right now, of, of Marvel titles that have transitioned into games. Has the distinguished competition not gone that route much, if at all? No, they have. They absolutely have. One of the my only my only problem with uh, DC as a company when it comes to video games is their reliance on Batman, and I love Batman, but right now, uh, rumor and innuendo is they're going to be doing a Suicide Squad game, and I jokingly responded with, "Yes, but how are they going to make Batman the focal point of this game?" 
And it's it's a shame, but, you know, the funniest thing is the Batman games are absolutely insane. They are some of the best superhero video games I've ever played. And one of the other things, you know, going back over to your time at Acclaim, the... I, I, I don't know if you were involved or not, but the advertising of these games at the time, you know, is some of the most memorable stuff. And I mentioned to Eddie, you know, you know, his familiarity of Acclaim is through those comic book advertisements. And, for example, one of my favorite ones is the ad for The Punisher that hardcore comic fans out there will remember on the back page of New Mutants number 98, which is the first appearance of who, Eddie? D- Deadpool. And and of and Gideon, <laughs> Gideon, yes, and was with Domino and Shatterstar also. Well, technically, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but what I was getting at is, these advertisements for these games are so memorable, and again, Acclaim was responsible for making these kind of ads. What was it like seeing the advertisements being created for Acclaim? Well, you know, when I was there, it was. I guess you could call it the perfect storm, or what, I don't know what the phrase is, but they had all the licenses. I mean, at a claim, they had the rights to every arcade game that Midway was producing. They had the WWF, they had the Simpsons, they had Marvel. They had relationships with all the film studios. They had all the sports titles going on. So they had everything. And they had a great marketing department. I mean, unbelievable. So just like you're saying, you know, they they didn't leave anything unturned. When Maximum Carnage came out, they came up with the red cartridge, which it was cool, but I was like, okay, you know, it's a cartridge. But nobody had ever done that before. Um, They had a special limited edition version of the hardcover comic book, Pins, the red cartridge numbered that they distributed only to comic book stores. They had um, a, I think they were, it was one of the first games to have a movie trailer made to be released in movie theaters. It was amazing. And they just did a great job. I was actually watching on YouTube last night the uh, commercial where it's like the city streets and all of a sudden you just see carnage like just show up in the sky. And when it came to that trailer, it was very memorable and it was something that was not the norm at the time. It was something that was very unique and different than what everyone else was doing. And, you know, whose idea was it to branch out in the marketing department and just make these things their own unique thing? And again, helping it become so memorable. Yeah, I, I don't know that... I can't remember the names of everyone in the marketing department, but they were a team. And the way a claim was set up is there was a floor that was marketing, and they did a great job. They worked very closely with the development teams, which is really key. A lot of times you get to companies and it's marketing against development. You know, the developers are like, leave us alone, we're going to make the game, you market it, that's it. But at Acclaim, you worked together. So, for instance, when Maximum Carnage was beginning development, I remember them coming down to the dungeon where we were developing it, looking at the size of the characters and some of the graphics when we first got our first cartridges of it with movement, and they said, okay, this is going to be an A title. 
and and then they worked with us. And you know, the, the one of the things that acclaim uh, taught us was make sure when you do a game, you've got like five bullet points that you can put on the back of the box that no other game has. And so while you were developing, you were like, okay, I got to think of at least five things that are unique to this title that no other title that I know of has in development. Um, And that's how we did it. And one of the things that I found very interesting about the game was whenever, and it's one of our questions that we received, uh, whenever you fight one of the characters, every single character in the game has a name pop up. So, like, if you're instead of it being like just generic thug number two, they actually have a name. So, like, you're beating the ever living bejesus out of Billy, and then you're beating up his friend Darren, and then you're be- it's like, how did that come about? I believe that was the development team putting in all their names. It, it's something very unique that I. As far as I can tell, I've never really seen in a beat 'em up like before or after. And you know, another thing about the game was the music. And we're not going to name off the people who asked this, but we got a number of people asking, "How did it come about with you guys getting Green Jello to do the theme song of the game?" From what I heard um, and what I remember when I was at Acclaim, the marketing department was always reaching out, and we had. Like I said, we had relationships with film studios. We had relationships with recording uh, studios. And apparently somebody got a hold of them and said that Green Jello was a big Spider-Man fan. And I, they, wanted, they wanted to do music for the game. So McLean was like, sure, let's do it. And you guys got like an eternal free commercial, you know, as long as Green Jello is around as a band, they from time to time will play the song Carnage Rules in their concert sets. Like I believe uh, I'm friends with their tour guitarist, Jeremy, and Jeremy's informed me they've only played it a handful of times, but from time to time they will bring Carnage Rules out and it brings back all these memories of the game for people. And again, it's essentially a free commercial for you guys, you know, during their tours. And again, it's absolutely insane. And another question in regards to the music comes from Adam Nelson, who was asking about how in one of the fight battles, the mob rule, like a rendition of the mob rules by black Sabbath starts to play how did that come about? Was that one of those where you guys contacted Sabbath, or was it, let's see if anybody notices? <laughs> I think it was, let's see if anybody notices. Later on in my career, I would really, I have relationships with the music industry and pick songs and work really hard, like on Blitz and Slugfest. I would work on the music for the intros, for the the selection screens, all that. But on this title, I don't remember being that involved in the music, and I don't think Acclaim was that involved besides Green Jello. So I think it was mostly the developer just plugging in some soundtracks and some whatever they felt they wanted to do. And in those days, I guess some things could slip by. And it's, it's again, one of those like little memorable things about the game. So many people 
love the game for the soundtrack, not just because of, you know, Green Jello's involvement, but because just how it sounds so much different than a lot of the games that were coming out of the time. It's got a very hard rock feel to it, and it's appropriate considering the character of Carnage and Venom. Mark, I, I assume it's going to vary, but just to get an idea, how much time does it take from either inception uh, to completion of any given game? Or you're you're on a you're on a time frame. All right, we got two months, three months to do this and get it out to market. And then there's another component, of course, which is how much is this going to go for? Maybe it depends on how much content is involved in the game. What do you what do you think about the time frame on on that? Well, Eddie, here's here's the deal. Uh, when I was doing games, it's pretty much twelve to eighteen months for a total. Mm. And um, what we're talking about, you know, the, the top platforms, the Nintendo, the Sega, the Genesis, all that. And then if you were at a company like Acclaim, where they were going to make the most of their marketing dollars, um, which we couldn't do on Maximum Carnage because of sometimes the game's too big to put on Game Boy or Game Gear. But if at all possible, if they could do a game on all four platforms at the time, uh, PlayStation hadn't come out yet, so it was was basically Nintendo, Sega, Game Boy, and Game Gear. You have them all in development at the same time. So you'd have uh, either maybe Game Boy and uh, SNES and Genesis at one developer. Maybe you'd have Game Boy at another one and the Game Gear at another one. Try and have them share some resources if possible. And as a producer, you have to coordinate everything and get them all done at the same time so that when the release date comes out and the marketing is there to back up those titles, and they have, like, posters. For Ma- there was a great poster for Maximum Carnage with all the enemies on the bottom, like a movie poster. Um, they can list on the bottom, you know, available on and list all the platforms. So uh, that's how that would work. But in general, in those days, you had 12 months to... 12 to 18 months, and that's it. If you went over that, you were, you were in trouble. Yeah, you'd be costing the company money. And, you, you know, you mentioned the advertisements for the game. Every time I see the cover of the game, which was used, I believe, uh, as the trade paperback cover of the original graphic novel of uh, Maximum Carnage, you see Carnage, uh, like, in enveloping the entire city of New York City, and it's like, it's just mass, again, it's cliche to say, but carnage all over. I'm going to wear a really bad wig as I say that at the end of Venom. But uh, you see that gigantic, you know, birding cityscape and everything, and it's I every time I see that cover of the book, I don't think of the story. I think of the game that you guys put out, and again, it's the, you know, immediate response to seeing that. And whoever was the one that said, we're going to use this as the cover, you know, give them the highest of high fives because, again, just memorable box art and everything about it. Agreed. And, you know, in addition to all of that, there's, you know, we have another question, uh, Eddie, if you could read it from Evan of uh, the, I believe, the Spidey Squad. All right. That would be one of the Evan, Evan, Evan. Evan uh, Falarka, correct? Correct. All right. This is going to be awesome in hearing about what we're going to do today. Uh, as for my question, what was one element from the comic 
that you wanted to implement within the final game but couldn't due to development restrictions, if there were any uh, game length, game rating, etc.? Good question. Um, when we did the title, I mean, there's always restrictions in those days as far as uh, how much memory you have and how much you can put on a, on a cartridge. And, in, and also in those days, it was, I think, just before they had uh, battery backups and saves and all that. So it was really restrictive. It, one, one major thing that I remember we really wanted to do was that while you were playing, you could call in help at any time during the game because there was uh, more other good guys besides Spider-Man that would come in and help them. And to have them come in at any time when you called them was too... It required too much memory because it, you never knew what the circumstances were or who they were coming in and fighting. So we had to restrict it to certain spots where you could call in somebody. And uh, we did the best we could. You know, one of the things you have to keep in mind, or I, I had to get used to in game development, and it takes years, or it took me years, is you go in with a game design and you want to put everything in. You want the characters to be huge. You want the fighting to be uh, endless. You want it, You don't want it to be just a, a side-scroller. You want to be able to walk everywhere. You want to have enemies coming in all over the place. You want to call in other people to help you at any time. You want it to be a free-form gameplay, and that's just not the case. But what you have to keep in mind is, when you finish a game as a developer or a producer, I think most of us go, oh, man, I wanted to put all these other things in, and they're not in there. But the consumer doesn't know what the original game plan was, and they don't know what the original design was. And most of the time, they're thrilled with what they have. So you can't beat yourself up over what you didn't get in the game. Uh, if you have an opportunity, you keep them on the back burner and you put them in the next game or the sequel. And in regards to the story of Maximum Carnage, how did it come about for that to be the game storyline and everything? Because did, who was the one that you know approached you guys? Was it you know Marvel saying, we want a Spider-Man game? Or did Marvel go, we want a Maximum Carnage game? Uh, no, it was a Spider-Man. You know, it was Spider-Man. We were always going to be putting out, for sure, a, another Spider-Man title. Like I said, we did some X-Men. We did some Wolverine. Um, I'm sure there was something else in there I'm forgetting. But Spider-Man was always a, a gimme. And so I remember that the uh, head of product development, his name was Paul Samolsky, fantastic guy, I'm still in touch with them. We, uh, Paul and I went into Manhattan to the Marvel offices and sat down with them and said, okay, what's going on with, with the comic books? What's coming up that we might uh, do a, a game on? And so they brought out Maximum Carnage, and they started to show us the storyline. 
They said it's going to be like a 14-part storyline. And Spider-Man, Carnage, and Venom fight all these enemies. Every comic book has a different set of enemies. And we just looked at each other and we said, this is it. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better game title with multiple enemies and a 14-part comic book storyline. We said, okay, this is what we're going to do. And that that is abs- the very definition of a happy accident because you wouldn't expect, oh, well, we'll just make you know a Spider-Man game, but to have all of that, and especially when you look at the game and see who is in it. You have Cloak and, da- uh, Cloak and Dagger, you have Captain America, Black Cat, of course, Spider-Man, Venom, Carnage. You have, uh, who else? I believe Shroud, you or Sh- some Shriek, you have the Doppelganger, Spider-Man, just so many characters in one game. And it's, again, it's a testament to what you guys were able to do in the 16-bit era, and the end result is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I've said it before, I'll say it again. It's one of those games that all these years later, over 20-something years later, it still holds up as one of the best beat-em-up games of its generation and across all console generations now. And I have to say again, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I'm glad other people did too. And one of the games that, you know, you were involved with, but it never got to be released. You mentioned this uh, in our initial correspondence, and it blew my mind when you mentioned it, because I had just watched a video by a friend of the show, Panels to Pixels, and he meant, he, he was talking about it. The Spider-Man, or not Spider-Man, <clears throat> the Marvel 2099 game that was supposed to come out for the play, Sony PlayStation 1. What happened with that? And like, why wasn't it ever released? Because I looked at the videos, I've looked at the screenshots, I would have played that game. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, that, you know, look, I was lucky, like I said, in, in early on in my career, when I worked at Konami, when I worked at Acclaim, almost, I would say, probably 99% of the titles I worked on came out. And in those days, they didn't cancel titles. You just, Worked on them, you, you cranked them out, you did the best job you could. Some of them were A titles, some of them were B titles, some of them were C titles, but they put them out. And, and consumers were buying them. Uh, as my career, later on in my career, you got to companies and titles were not being released for various reasons. Companies, and it was development was more expensive. Companies didn't want to take the risk. They'd get certain amount uh, into development and then say, you know what, we're not doing this. So to answer your, your question, I left Acclaim and I went to Mindscape again out in San Francisco, uh, kind of a homecoming because I had started at Mindscape earlier in my career. And I had all these relationships with Marvel at the time. So I got a hold of Marvel And I said, look, I know Acclaim has everything tied up, but is there anything, anything that's fallen through the cracks that I could possibly work on? And they said, well, there's this one title that they don't have the rights to called Marvel 2099. Hmm. And I said, really? Well, 
what's that? And they, they proceeded to tell me it's like, I don't know, 50, 60 Marvel characters, every, every, almost every Marvel character there is in the future, in 2099. The costumes are different, but the characters are all there. And I said, all right, this is it. We're doing it. I mean, how could, how could anybody pass up on that? So it took a lot of convincing because, like I said, that was still before the first Spider-Man title. And even though comic book titles came out on the game consoles, I don't think they had anywhere near the respect of the power of the comic book characters in today's society. So Mindscape was very reluctant to do it. Um, but I got it going, and I got the contracts done with Marvel, and we got the game in development, and I started working with a developer that had actually um, branched out from a developer. It's, everyone knows everyone in the industry. So um, one of the executive producers I had worked, Sculpture Software, my... Um, wrestling titles, they sculptured with did Mortal Kombat, and uh, one of the executive producers there started his own company in Utah, and we talked, and I said, okay, I think you can handle this. So we placed the, uh, the game title with them, and they started it, and they were doing a great job. The thing we really had to I guess the date was, what kind of a game is it? Like I said, it, it, you really want a game to be open-ended with a wide environment where you can go anywhere you want. But that takes a lot of programming. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of memory. And with all those characters we had in 2099 and the type of graphics we wanted to show... Uh, to make them look better than anything that's been out there at, at that time, we decided on more of a side-scrolling type game with some of the gameplay elements moving in an inward direction, but most of them on a, a left-to-right scrolling pattern. And um, the game got in development. It was coming out wonderful. We had... Um, actually had a booth with the showing of it at a, um, a Comic-Con in San Diego next to Marvel. They, we had a space uh, showing the title in development. Um, I had a meeting at, uh, I think, a toy fair with uh, Avi, I think it's A-Rod? Avi Arad. The producer of the Spider-Man movies. He was like, He's the one that got the first Spider-Man movie to see the light of day. And Avi um, was, I think, one of the heads of Marvel at the time. And mm -hmm. we had a backdoor meeting with him. He loved what he saw. But what happened with development is Mindscape ran into financial problems. Um, they started to dropped development on a number of titles. They actually, after that title 
got shut down. The whole company, I think, uh, probably a year later, closed their doors. But, but throughout development, I don't think that the marketing department at Mindscape was ever really on board. They just didn't get it. You know, sometimes you get lucky with either a marketing department that's just incredible like a claim or people in the marketing department that are really into the license or the titles you're working on. But it was an uphill battle at Mindscape. They, they just they didn't understand my vision. They didn't understand Marvel. And so I, I, don't, I never felt like we really got the support we needed anyway. It's one of those things that I would love, like a lot of video games over the years, like a lot of unreleased games have seen the light of day through, you know, unreleased prototype ROMs. I hope and pray that one day we, you know, how, well, how close to completion was the game? We were probably, I would say probably close to halfway. Um, I probably still have in my archives, uh, some of the game design documents, and I, ha- I definitely have some of the marketing materials that we started to acquire. We had like a, I don't know, a 10-page booklet that we were handing out at the uh, Comic-Con with pictures of characters uh, that were in development. I know there was, and I wish I had it, there was a really cool uh, animated sequence of Hulk jumping down a sewer and running down the underground sewage pipes, and it looked awesome. <laughs> but I, I don't have it. I don't know. Somebody must. If you're ever able to uh, put the promotional material or any of the documentation online, we would love to see that. I know myself, especially. Well, I gave, I gave a bunch of it to a... There's a, a website uh, uh, dedicated to 2099... And I gave a bunch of that to them. They contacted me years ago, and they put some of that on there. But, yeah, I, I, I'd be happy to. I've got, and I've got, the, um, I've got a stack of probably 60 Marvel characters. The, um, the uh, I don't know what they're called, but, you know, where they show the front, back, and side view of the characters. Uh, the character design sheets. Yeah, the turnarounds, yeah. I have all of those in like 11 11 by 17 pages of all the Marvel characters from that development. They're really cool. That's incredible. And again, you know, I hope um, maybe, you know, somehow it can see the light of day in terms of like, you know, because like I said, a lot of uh, unproduced video games have seen the light of day through the ROMs leaking online and whatnot. It would be cool just to, you know, even play a few minutes of that because, ah, it looked so cool. (laughs) I I agree. And I know we had a playable version at the Comic-Con because we were letting people play it, so. What was, like, the general reaction to that, uh, the playthrough, you know, at Comic-Con, the reception? I think it was good, from what I remember. Um, And the title was, looked great. The only feedback I recall that was a little um, critical was that it was this more of a side-scroller when games were just starting to, you know, that's when Mario 64 had just come out, where you could walk everywhere. 
And uh, so people were a little anxious to have game environments more open and gameplay more open. But you were always battling Nintendo in those days. Nintendo would put out a, a Mario game and just kick everyone's butt, and then you'd be struggling to to match their 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 game designs. But they had more time than anyone. They always had battery backups. They had the budgets, and they put out they put out games to sell their consoles. So nobody made games as good as them. It's still, again, you know, a testament to what you guys did that. Maximum Carnage and even a game that was unreleased like 2099 are talked about in such high regard and again I want to say thank you you know not just for your time speaking with us today but the impact you guys have on an industry that you know you have games nowadays like Spider-Man for the PS4 and upcoming soon the Spider-Man Miles Morales game it's amazing to see you know what you know, we started out with, with a game like a Maximum Carnage, and it leads us all these years later to what we see now from game, you know, game companies like Insomniac. The evolution yeah, it's is incredible. It's, it's amazing what they can do nowadays. I, you know, in those days, we had so many restrictions and limitations. Nowadays, I think it's, it, the only limitation is, is creativity and, and what someone can come up with, because you can do just about anything you want. Absolutely. And Mark, before we go, like I said, I want to say thank you for your time and thank you for everything you've done in the gaming industry. My pleasure. I think, though, guys, we did pretty much answer the couple of other questions that had come through. The Toy Shiz question, Peter, would you say? Uh, I would. What was, what was uh, Toy Shiz's question? How did you come up with all the names for each generic enemy? Oh. Yeah, we did that. Yeah, that was pretty much uh, the people that were working on it. I think, right? Right. Okay, and then uh, Mean Street Mac was regarding the red cartridge. We went over that, too. We did. Gotcha. I, I assume it goes without saying, but I'm going to ask anyway, Mark, is that uh, the game ideas come about from the already established comic characters. It's not necessarily, or maybe there's some exception where the game is the genesis, the beginning of, of a character or, or, or an idea of a game to start with it's typically coming from the game production is coming from something that's already out there i love that eddie made an unintentional pun by saying genesis well you mean any game or specifically the marvel titles i guess it really would be marvel centric of the question and yes genesis it's a, it's a good group too well i think when you're doing uh, a comic book title game you you got a built-in audience and you have an audience that has expectations. Whether it's a movie you're doing, a comic book, a game, you don't mess with the characters. You stick with what's been created. It's rare to introduce a new character, I think, in a video game. Usually video games are based on characters that are already created. Yep. Um, are there, though, any, any characters, Marvel, that haven't seen a video game? I'm just thinking, like, Conan the Barbarian. Speedball game, so it has. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm. I don't, oh yeah, I don't know. So. <laughs> well, you know, look, there. I don't think there's been a Guardians of the Galaxies game. Oh. No, there has. It was uh, Telltale Games. It was like it was uh, like a modern day version of the point and click adventure games. It was. It, it was fun. 
But, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because after my long career in games, I went into toys and I worked at, at Hasbro. And Hasbro had the Marvel license. And one of the first... I was at Hasbro at the time when Marvel was... Spider-Man was out and was doing great. And the next thing they were going to release was Captain America and Thor. And I was just... I remember sitting at, in ha- at Hasbro going, really? Out of all the characters, these are the two they picked? But Marvel has such an enormous uh, group of characters, and they're doing such a great job that it's endless. You know, I, I was never a fan of uh, Doctor Strange when I was a kid, but that movie was fantastic. So I'm sure there's a ton of characters that Marvel has that they haven't even tapped into yet. Mm-hmm. Anybody That's you would the... like to see come out, you know, in a game? Well, I, 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 I don't know if they've done a Doctor Strange game yet. Nope. But, but I would love to see that. Mm. Um, I would love to see a good Guardians of the Galaxy game. I'm not saying the one... I haven't seen the one that's out there yet. But I love... The characters, I love, I love Groot, I love uh, Rocket. They're great characters. There's a lot of. I mean, I just look at those movies and I go, "That's a game." There's so many gameplay elements in that. Um, so there's a lot of stuff there. Um, I'm trying to think who else we got. Well, you mentioned Doctor Strange. In two weeks, they're coming out with a... Uh, Sony is going to be releasing the Iron Man VR game for their VR headset and everything. Could you imagine a Doctor Strange video game, but it's a VR game where you put the helmet on and you utilize you know, your hands, you, know, you put your hands out, you do the different hand poses that Doctor Strange would do, and it's that kind of video game? That would be awesome. Yep. There's again, there's so much that they could do with these characters, and it's absolutely mind blowing that you know. You mentioned Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange, like, is a household name now. Groot is a household name, and all these years later, it's again, it's still one of those things I can't get over. Yeah, yeah, and and I'm sure there's a ton that we're just we're not thinking of that don't come to mind, but. They have a huge, huge library of characters. I mean, as does DC, that you just got to do it right. And, and Marvel has had an incredible, incredible at least 10-year run where they did everything right. They planned it. They had one movie follow the other. They, they brought them all together at the end. And it's genius. They, you know, DC was the one that started in the movies with, with Superman and Batman and, and really kind of took the lead as far as major motion pictures. And then Marvel came up and kicked their butt. Marvel went from Howard the Duck to Endgame. And that is a hell of a glow, that is a hell of a glow up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mark, there's so many other things I want to pick your brain about, but for now, I think that's going to wrap this episode up for today. Once again, big thank you for doing the show today and speaking with us. 
My pleasure. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Eddie. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Mark Flipman. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! It's Obsessed with Marvel with Mark Flitman. And here we go, right into it. Question number 474. Why did Spider-Man attempt to join the Fantastic Four in The Amazing Spider-Man number 1 from 1963? Is it to train in using his superpowers? To, asso- to associate with superpowered colleagues? To get a steady paycheck? Or to help Reed Richards in scientific research? Ooh, that could be a little tricky, but I think I know. To quote Dr. Zoidberg, he needed the money. Who? Dr. Zoidberg Zoidberg from Futurama. Pew, pew. It's a good show. show. Okay. Uh, Mark? I'm leaning toward either A or D. To train in using his superpowers or to help Reed Richards in his scientific research. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, again, the other answers are to associate with superpowered colleagues or to get a steady paycheck. Why did Spider-Man attempt to join the Fantastic Four in Amazing Spider-Man number one? Uh, Peter, what are you saying? I'm saying he needed the money. He needed that steady paycheck. So actually, yeah. Because I think he gets majorly disappointed at the end of the issue. And he's, he means, what do you mean there's no money here? Or something to that effect. Because he's in he's a non-profit. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. So um, I think we're going to take the majority answer at letter C. And that is correct. Okay. Oh, a high school kid wanting money? <laughs> In the beginning... And wow. the, going into the ring and, and the Flying Dutchman and, uh, yeah, I missed the part. Where that's Hogan. Yeah, I missed the part where that's my responsibility. Okay. In Boonsaw. <laughs> hey, freak show. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> I got you for three minutes. 14. Didn't he fight, didn't he fight the Macho Man in the first movie? Uh, yeah. He, he did. did. Yep. All right, here we go. Question, second one question here is number 1,469. Which Armbar. I knew it was coming. Which communist villain appeared in The Incredible Hulk number one from 1962? I think I got this. All right. Uh, was it the chameleon, the gargoyle, the gremlin, or the devastator? I'll read it again. Which communist villain appeared in The Incredible Hulk number one? The chameleon, the gargoyle, the gremlin, the devastator. Was, wasn't it the gargoyle? You're saying gargoyle, Peter? Okay. Mark? I was leaning toward gargoyle, but I have no clue. You're going to take a shot in the dark or just go with gargoyle? I'm going to go with gargoyle. I can picture the gargoyle. I can too. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's gray. I th- yeah. I'm going to go with my gut, and that is going to be, again, letter C, the gremlin. And let, let me. I'm going to pick C because I'm holding the book. So... The answer is the gargoyle. Woo. I'm out. Okay. I, I could swear, but I won't, that that was... Okay. And finally... Oh, language. It was almost a language thing. Okay. <gasps> Two, three... Sorry, I just wanted to breathe in deep. Gee, I'm sure. And exhale. Okay. So let's go to a third question, and it is two, three, eight, zero. One more page. Backwards. 2380. Okay. Which Marvel hero has the same name that the Phantom Rider originally had? Choices are Ghost Rider, The Punisher, The Spirit of Vengeance, or Terror. Phantom Rider, Marvel hero, same name. 
Ghost Rider, Punisher, Spirit of Vengeance, Terror. Your Honor, I have no idea. Wow. Okay, I think I know this. Doesn't mean I anything. No but... Either, but I'll take a guess. Okay, let's I'll have. I'll say Spirit Avenger. Spirit of Spirit of Vengeance. Yeah. Okay, Phantom. Ra- See now, I'm, now I'm now I'm hesitating because I'm thinking Ghost Rider was a Western character on a horse with a cape and a hat, and now I'm Phantom Rider. Oof, okay. And now you're talking like William Shatner. Because <laughs> I was going to say Ghost Rider. And, all right, just for the sake of it, I'm hitting A. And it is Ghost Rider, yes! I thought that was too obvious. Yeah, sometimes. Okay, are we are we good or we want to just... I think three for three is pretty good. Three. <laughs> Boom shakalaka. Yeah. All right, excellent, thank you.